How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Ruthless and Aggression edition of the Third Light Plug Sensecast. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jensen. Tim, how's it going, sir? Pretty good. And I think I got all the razzing you out of the system just now. Yeah, I was going to say, because this is, what, the second time I had to record that? Because I was like, welcome to the... No, that's not going to work. I have to go back. And you're like, you know, you need to come in harder. I'm like, you know what? Shut up. <laughs> Easy for you to say when you're not doing the intro. Yeah, yeah, Tim. <laughs> you see, ladies and gentlemen, this is what I have to deal with on a weekly basis from him. You love it. That's true. Actually, you know what I do love, though, Tim? Today's episode, because today's episode is Season 3, Episode 19, in chronological order, Episode 73, the Guillaume Latendresse episode of the Third Line Book Sensecast. So, the backstory on Guillaume Latendresse, he was drafted 45th overall by the Montreal Canadiens in 2005. He went on to play three-plus seasons for Montreal before being traded to Minnesota, where he would play parts of three seasons before he signed as a free agent with the Senators in 2012, recording six goals, four assists for 10 points in 27 games in the 2013 season. So, you know, Tim, usually with these kind of players, I would say, oh, I remember this guy with this team and this guy. This guy, I'm putting back in the folder of, I remember him as a character from EA's NHL games, but not as a player. But the one thing I actually, I actually didn't realize this until I was looking him up on Google. I did not realize he played so recently for the Senators. And I don't know why. I thought because he had played in 2010, 2011, for whatever reason. I thought he played in that era. I didn't even realize that he only played for us in 2013. Well, I mean, did he even play for us in the year 2013? Because he was injured for most of that season. Yeah. And what's surprising about Guillaume Latendresse is that for a guy who spent most of the time dead, he put up pretty good fancy stats, and his point production was honestly solid. It's a shame because, like, if the dude could stay healthy, he'd be a solid uh, top nine, top six forward. Yeah, he could have been, and I know that's what Montreal drafted him for, right? But with Guillaume Latendresse, I often wonder how much of it was his health and how much of it is the Habs rushing him to the NHL because, A, he's francophone. And, you know, the Montreal Canadiens always need that francophone player that they always try and build into a star. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But also, I yeah, I maintain that. I wonder if it was more his health or the more that they rushed him because he was 19 years old when he played in the NHL. And even Patrick Waugh called up that Habs going, oh, yeah, he's only on the team because he's French-Canadian. Yeah, but the thing, though, is it's not like the guy couldn't perform. Like, he was looking at uh, somewhere between 1.5 to 2 primary points per hour, which is better than replacement, and uh, the guy was very defensively responsible while still being able to put up good shots. So I don't think he was rushed. I think he just got hurt yeah. a lot. Yeah, again, he's just one of those guys that, again, I remember him more from the EA NHL games than as a player. But another thing I didn't realize, and maybe it's because I've completely forgotten about it, or the fact is that they're one of those teams that when players go there, you often forget that they play for them. 
was his time with Minnesota. I don't know if that's like that with yourself, but for me, when players go to Minnesota, it's often like they go there and they're, I don't want to say completely forgotten about, but I think for the the general fan, Minnesota just seems like one of those teams that, oh my God, he played for the Wild? Like, unless your name was, you know, Marion Gabrick or, or, uh, fuck, um, who are the two guys with Minnesota now? Parise and Suter. And, like, most people forget about Suter, but remember about Weber. That's kind of the funny one, given that they're both on, uh, Montreal. Sorry, I mean, not, sorry, both on, uh, the Predators. That's true, but the thing is, is that Shea Weber was, you know, an Olympian and a superstar defenseman, whereas, not to say Suter wasn't that, but Suter always seemed to play second fiddle to Shea Weber in Nashville. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a ton of guys just go down the memory hole, and especially around that time, too. Like, uh, that's when Danny Heatley was on there. That was after Devin Setaguchi. Devin Setaguchi was on that 2011-2012 uh, uh, Minnesota Wild team, too. Yeah, Martin Havlat. Yeah, so... I think that team in particular was the almost like the Minnesota mediocrity. And that was when they like loaded up. It's like, we're going to be serious boys now. And that just never really happened. So, Tim, let's talk about next week's poll because next week's episode is Season 3, Episode 20, in chronological order, Episode 74. Now, we've got two players on the board. We've got Steve LaRouche and Borokop himself, Mark Borbieski. I hope we don't have a weird-ass poll result this time. No, from what I'm seeing, Borbieski is the heavy favorites right now. Fantastic. I How actually, many people voted? Is it just Adam? No, it was five of them. And actually, somebody quote, I think it was McKinnon. McKinnon quote tweeted, and when I put it up, he just responded with, come on now. I love that we have people that interact with the show, you know? I know, it's so great. And the fact that we can name drop them on the podcast whenever I feel like it. Yeah, well, they say... Everyone seems cool about it. <laughs> I think so. I mean, hell, for next week's episode, because even though it's well, most likely going to be the Mark Rubieski episode, just a little reminder that next week's episode is our trade deadline episode. So we're not going to talk about games for next week. We're not going to talk top of the hour. It's all going to be about trades. But that's for next week. Hey, it, let's be real. It's actually just a full episode of top of the hour. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. <laughs> Yeah, if I'm being honest, that's that's pretty fair. But I'll tell you one thing, though. It's time to segue into this little segment I like to call Top of the Hour. So, Tim, usually with Top of the Hour, you know, we start off with Ovi Watch or Thornton Tracker, or we'd be talking about a death. But... We're not going to do any of that, but we are going to give a really quick shout-out to St. Louis Blues defenseman Jay Bullmeister because Jay Bullmeister suffered a cardiac episode on the bench during the team's game Tuesday night versus the Anaheim Ducks. Blues GM Doug Armstrong confirmed Bullmeister was later conscious and alert as he went, went underwent further testing at UC Irvine Medical Center. Said game was postponed following the incident until a later day. This was terrifying to watch in real time. It was, and it was one of those things where you saw it, like I saw it online, and it still is one of those things where you're like, whoa, like that's serious. Like even with like the Yuri Fishers and the Rich Peverleys, you didn't see them go down. 
you saw Jay Bolmeister go down. And that's scary because, and you know, I've talked about this in the past with players. Because they're professional athletes, we tend to take away the human aspect of these players. We tend to forget that, okay, yes, they're millionaires. Yes, they're in the NHL. Yes, they're famous. But they're still human. And you often take that element out of it, right, when you talk with these players. And it's not until moments like this is when you really, really realize that hockey players are also human. Well, I think the other thing is in the last few years, uh, the NHL really hasn't had a, like purely scary moments. And this season has had two big ones off the top of my head with this and the Scott, Scott Sabrin incident. It is, and it's one of the. It's so sad, right? Because, but you know what? The one thing I really love about hockey and the fans is that when moments like this happen, it doesn't matter what team you cheer for or whether or not you like the player or not. You'll always see the support of said player when these incidents happen. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's sad about Jay Bullmeister because because I know he went under an operation following this. And that could signal the end of his career. And that's really scary, right? Because, you know, he was, I think well, he's 30, what is he now, 36, 37? Top of my head? Yeah. I, I would say about that. Yeah, about 36, 37. This could signal the end of his career. Right here. And, you know, and it's sad because, you know, you, you hear a lot about players saying that they often wish that they could go out on their own terms. Jay Bomeister is not one of these players right now. And Bomeister is one of these guys that... I often look back on his career, and I don't want to say he underachieved, but he was definitely somebody that I don't think fully got credit for how good of a player he was, because I know when he played for Calgary, he was constantly, constantly criticized by the fans and the media for how he played with the Flames. Yeah, and I feel like it was just, he never really fit right in Calgary. Well, the hard thing with Jay Bomeister, though, is just, the fancy stats were never on his side. Yeah, and I mean, he he put up decent numbers in Calgary and even in Florida and whatever team he played for. But as you were saying, right, the fancy stats were never on his side. And maybe that's why hockey fans, when they look at his career, can often go to that and be like, yeah, he put up these numbers, but look at the fancy stats, look at the course, look at everything on that end, right? Well, especially the big one is uh, for a guy who was touted as an offensive defenseman, he didn't generate a lot of shots. True. But the thing is, is that you often wonder how much of that was him and how much was the systems in which he played it in the NHL. Oh, especially for Calgary. Because it definitely got a bit better when he got to St. Louis. Yeah, because St. Louis and Calgary definitely play a very similar style of hockey. But in Calgary, back in the day from what I remember, really all the defensemen had to do was chip it in and let the forwards do all the work. Yeah. Those Calgary teams were oddly mediocre, too. Yeah, especially when he was in Calgary, because that was in the mid to late 2000s, early 2010s. And yeah, those, and like, those were the years where Calgary really was in a transitional period where Jerome McGinley was still on the team and Conroy was still there, but they really hadn't fully bought into... A rebuild. They hadn't fully re into a transitional period where they could bring the young guys in. And I think that's where in Calgary, if you go back and look at those rosters, they brought in the Matt Stagens. They brought in players like that to more or less try and shore up their 
their depth and their forward and their defense and whatever. And I think that's why those teams were so mediocre because you just had a bunch of guys who maybe were past their prime, maybe didn't have much left in the tank, and they were expecting them to go out and turn the clock back five years. Yeah, and then they were also pushing out their young guys. Like, they traded Dion Phaneuf for, like, Matt Stajan and stuff. Yeah, but the thing is about Phaneuf is that Phaneuf's career was definitely on the downswing. And it's, Dion Phaneuf's Which is another, sad, given how young he was. And it's funny, right? Because Dion Phaneuf's another one of those players. If you were to tell me in 2007, his career would have gone downhill so quickly, I would have said you're lying. Because I would have said, okay, well, you know what? This guy is early 20s. He just put up 20 goals in his rookie year. And he's putting up really good numbers. And then, of course, you know, the 0708, 0809, 10 You look at those numbers and you're like, holy crap. Like, this is not the same player. Like, what the hell happened here? Yeah. Well, it's just like those five years in Toronto were rough. Yeah, and then he came to Ottawa and... I don't want to say that Dion Phaneuf was a terrible player for the Senators, but he was definitely a player that I think he was criticized for two reasons. Number one, he wasn't the greatest defenseman in the world when he played for us, but also he had the Bobby Ryan-esque contract to him. And I think that's why a lot of the criticism for Dion Phaneuf came into play. For sure. And I think uh, in that 2016-2017 season, pitched in 30 points and wasn't absolutely god-awful next to Cody Cece. So I guess that counts for something. But yeah, it was definitely... That was a career that took a downswing real fast. And he's another guy where you could see that he was giving up a lot of bad shots and uh, he he gave up a lot of ice. So Tim, let's move on to our next story. The class of... Excuse me. The class of 2020 for the Order of Hockey in Canada was unveiled Tuesday. Said class includes former Montreal Canadiens goaltender Ken Dryden, former NHLer Sheldon Kennedy, and Dr. Charles Tatter of the University of Toronto. The order celebrates individuals for their outstanding contributions or services to the growth and development of the sport of hockey in Canada. I did not know this was a thing. I did not know this was a thing either. But you know what? And I was looking at this, and I actually looked in a little bit about it. I think it's a really great thing because... To me, this is kind of an award that, outside of being inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, I think for hockey, this is a great thing because this is where people, like it says, the contributions or your services to the growth of the game is really shown. And I know that Ken Dryden, I mean, he worked as an executive for the Leafs for a number of years, and Sheldon Kennedy's been an advocate for bullying and sexual abuse. But the big thing for me when I was reading this was Dr. Tatter. Because Dr. Tatter, as everybody knows, was the doctor that spearheaded the CTE research for the NHL. It's interesting because that's kind of a political pick too because the NHL kind of just shut down anything around CTE. Yes, exactly. And this is a pick where, to me, I often wonder if this was a pick of like, okay, the NHL is completely ignoring the fact that CTE is a real thing. CTE is a fact of hockey where the players are dying as a result, but also they recognize that they will never, or or they will never recognize Charles Tatter for the work he's done because the NHL is completely and blindly ignoring it. Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah, so I have no problem with that, and I think it's really great that uh, Dr. Tatter is being recognized because... 
you know, and you look at the last 10 years, you look at the deaths of Bob Probert and, of course, Rick Rippin and Wade Belak and Derek Booger in 2011 and Steve Monador. And the research that they're doing on these brains, it's really giving you more of a clear answer on why. Why these players are doing this. The roles may... And it's not so much the roles. Because I know uh, one of the guys from the French Connection, the Buffalo Sabres in the 70s, died in a car accident. And they looked at his brain, and they found CTE as well. And he was a goal scorer, not a fighter. I wonder if something similar happened with uh, Tim Horton. That would have been interesting to see, because Tim Horton was a very good two-way player. And, of course, everybody knows here in Canada about the Tim Horton's coffee shops. But... That would be interesting, and I think a lot of those older players, I would be very interested to see, like when Jean Beliveau passed away, the Stan Mikitas, and I often wonder when older players later do pass away, like the Bobby Halls and these guys, I often wonder if their families will donate their brains to Dr. Tad or whoever's doing these research to see whether they had CTE as well. Yeah, well, it's a lot of Canadian reads universities are doing stuff with uh, CTE. Like I know there's uh, research uh, at the University of Calgary about the effects of CTE on young players. Or, well, it's not diagnosable, but the effects of the concussions on young players. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a big research one. And I think the one that would be really interesting is if you can get your hands on the brains of some of those players who uh, played in the no-helmet era. Yeah, that would be very interesting because it's not just fighting, but it's also guys getting hit in the head with sticks pucks falling down falling down and that would be even a guy like glenn hall if he were to pass away tomorrow i would be very interested to see if they were to look at his brain because a lot of the goaltenders up until jacques plant inventing the goalie mask a lot of those guys took slap shots to the face this wasn't like a drop in hockey thing where you take a little wrist shot maybe get dinged or whatever they're taking 100 mile per slap shots to the dome yeah that can't be good so, Tim, let's go into our next story, and it's actually about your good buddy and former NBC employee, Jeremy Roenick. Former NHLer turned analyst Jeremy Roenick has officially been fired by NBC Sports over sexual comments he made about his co-workers on the Barstool Sports podcast, Spit and Chicklets. Roenick, who appeared on the, po- on the program in mid-December, was suspended by NBC shortly after the comments were made public. Okay. This is stupid. The guy, the guy's an absolute fucking moron. Okay, going on hold on, hold on. Talking about sex stuff. That's just dumb on his part. Let me get this straight. NBC suspended Jeremy Roenick for comments he made on Spit and Chicklets. Let me repeat this. Jeremy Roenick, who is a very well-known and very outspoken sports analyst got fired from his position with NBC, who who hired him because they know that he's polarizing and he's opinionated, got fired because of comments he made on Spit and Tricklets, which is a very polarizing podcast, because of the comments he made. What a time to be alive. The irony of that just hurts my head trying to comprehend that. At the same time, I get it. Yeah, uh, I I totally get it. I, I understand why they did it. But at the same time, just trying to wrap my head around the fact Jeremy Roenick lost his job over something he said. The irony is just so delicious on this one. It is unbelievable. (laughs) You're loving it. 
it. It's one of those things where I'm just like, this is the world that we live in now that, you know, polarizing opinionated people are getting fired. And of course, you know, with the Don Cherry comments back in November, but this is one of the things, and I totally understand NBC's stance of firing Jeremy Rock on this. Because when you go into programs like this, you are not only representing yourself, you're also representative of the network or whoever you work for. So you kind of need to watch what you say. On the flip side of that, look at the podcast he was on. Look at the network that that podcast is on. They know what their demographic is. Their demographic is 18 to 35-year-old men. Jeremy Roenick is simply catering to that market. I understand that not everybody is going to like the comments. I understand that not everybody likes spit and chiclets, and I totally understand that. And I've made my comments and opinion felt here on the show that spit and chiclets is one of those podcasts that if I just sum up in one word, it would have to be polarizing because I do not agree wholeheartedly with guys like Ryan Whitney or Paul Bizonette, what they say on the podcast. I don't always agree with them. I do think they have very good. I, I, I think their opinion is very good at times on certain subjects, but I don't agree with everything they say. And that's, think, and that's one of the things. I mean, yeah. the one thing I can always give them credit for is that regardless of whether you like Paul Bizonette, whether you like Ryan Whitney, I feel the one thing they have always done well is their interviews. The interviews are fantastic. The interviews are very engaging to listen to. You get them to tell stories that you would never, ever think you would ever hear. And this is where guys like Jeremy Roenick comes in where you know he has a lot of crazy stories. You know he was in the NHL for 20 years, so he has a lot of stuff to say. And this is just the kind of the world that we live in now where a guy who's very opinionated, very polarizing, loses his job over comments. And I'm not saying that Jeremy Roenick is in the right to stand. Because he wasn't. But... I'm not saying NBC was in the wrong to do this at all. I don't think NBC really had a choice here. You can't have a guy go out and spill the part of the seedy part of our office politics because it puts an egg on your face and it puts an egg on everyone's face. Because especially, especially when you're talking about like sex in the office, because that breaks offices. So it, it's like, it does. I don't think NBC has a choice. No, they don't. And the same with Sportsnet with the Don Cherry firing, right? Because the comments that they made are obviously the opinion, or I'm trying to think of what I'm going to say here. What Don Cherry said, Don Cherry wholeheartedly believed. He could have worded it better. I think if he had worded it differently, he would still be on TV today. I'm not saying... And, and you were absolutely right about Jeremy Roenick and the seedy side of office politics. But let's be honest. How many times in the workplace, and you know, you talk to with your buddies, these kind of comments get made. And believe me, I've worked in kitchens my whole life, and you know, the term kitchen humor gets thrown around, and a lot of stuff like that gets said. The difference is, is we're not going on a podcast, we're not going on radio, we're just not doing that kind of stuff and telling those kind of stories. Mm -hmm. It kind of goes to show that NBC doesn't actually give a shit about having
healthy workplace. At the same time, I didn't listen to the story, so I don't really know what the full details of what he said. But as soon as it's like, oh, he was talking about sex in the office, like, yeah, that'll get you fired. Yeah, and I mean, and I didn't get a chance to listen to it either. Excuse me, but I did did see the comments on Twitter when he was first suspended, and I'm thinking, and I think here's the funny thing: when I first heard those comments, my reaction was like. Yeah, I'm not surprised Jeremy Roenick said that. Because I know... And that's not the only comment he made, apparently. He, apparently he made a comment also about Patrick Sharp. Saying that he's a beautiful man and all this stuff. And he said, you know, he says, you know... If I was on vacation with Patrick Sharp and he came on to me... Yeah, I'd probably fuck him. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think that constitutes a sexual harassment of any way. Like, I think that's just a funny comment. Yeah, I, but you know what, though? There's always going to be the people who would say, okay... You fired Jeremy Roenick because of this comment, but he made a similar comment about this person. So where do you draw think, the line in the sand? Well, I think that one's totally different because it's him talking about, oh yeah, my buddy's my buddy looks good versus, hey, I slapped two chicks at my work. Like that's, I think it's just a different ballpark. Yeah, I totally agree with that, but. But that's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that there are people out there who will listen to that and think, okay, well, how is that wrong that that isn't, right? Whether or not people... It, it's a totally different context, of oh, what, yeah. as you're saying. It's the context of whether what you say. That's how people are going to interpret it, right? Mm. And, like, context matters. And I think probably the big loser here, well, other than Jeremy Roenick, is probably going to be spitting chicklets because you're probably going to get less of the crazy stories. Well, that too, but also, I often wonder, with Jeremy Roenick being fired by NBC, I often wonder if Barstool Sports is going to go after him now, given that, you know what, Jeremy Roenick is kind of what Barstool Sports and their fan base would be looking for. They want somebody who's polarizing, they want someone opinionated, they want somebody who just, for lack of a word, doesn't give a fuck. They want those kind of people, right? And that's where, that's why I... To me, I think that's why partly why Spit and Chicklets is so popular because they take a hockey podcast, they put a new spin on it, and they just throw the sensor out the door. Mm. They'd be like, go. And it, it's funny because Barstool as a brand ruffles a lot of feathers for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, and I, I totally understand that. And I understand that people that get pissed off with shows like Spit and Chicklets or Jeremy Roenick or whatever, I always say this. Okay, you're listening to Spit and Chicklets. You're getting upset by what they're saying. <laughs> Do you not understand what demographic they're going after? They're not going after a wide audience. They're targeting 18 to 35-year-old men. That's what Barstool Sports went after on TV. That's what Spike TV went after. They went after that market, and they succeeded. No- yeah, well, the other thing is, is I get, like, you see a lot of people talking how it's... Uh an expression of toxic masculinity in an exclusive culture. Buddy, it's a podcast, and I think the vast majority of hockey fans don't know what it is. And I don't... It's not actively stopping people from getting into hockey, and I don't think it's really reinforcing a bro culture. Chill out. Like, if you don't like it, you can close your browser. Exactly. Now, Tim, given that we were talking about Spit and Chicklets and Jeremy Roenick, 
Our next story does involve spitting chiclets. An article in the Globe and Mail regarding former NHLer Paul Bizonet sparked controversy after former NHLer Dan Carcillo tweeted about Senator Cole, to which Bizonet quote tweeted him, accusing him of calling him a racial slur in the rock room on a daily basis while they were teammates in the American Hockey League, while also accusing Carcillo of having a swastika embroiled on a robe under his hood during his time in the NHL. Carcillo also tweeted stating that he will release a statement regarding the alleged allegations from Bizonet, and added that he did contact him apologizing for the things he said to which he accepted. It's funny because this Globe and Mail article is actually directly about the point we kind of closed off the last story about that spitting chiclets is toxic masculinity. And if you read through the tweet chain about it, like the original tweet chain that Dan Cartzilla quote tweeted, it kind of reeked of jealousy. It does. But also, it's one of those things, and talking about Paul Bizonet, the one thing I can, I wholeheartedly can give him so much credit about, to me personally, he was the first NHLer that used social media to his advantage. This is before Roberto Luongo came along with a Strombone Twitter account. But think about it. When Paul Bizonet was in the NHL, what do you remember most about him? Do you remember him as a enforcer for the Arizona Coyotes? Or do you remember him as the Twitter account, BizNasty? I think the only thing, yeah, is mostly BizNasty because you had no reason to know who Paul Bizonet was other than guy on your team who gets punched in the face. And I think one of the things that a lot of Arizona fans bring up about Paul Bizonet when people accuse Big Chicklets of being exclusionary is that Paul Bizonet himself walks around Phoenix and hands out hockey tickets to random people. Yeah, exactly. Like he's a guy who just goes out of his way to be, to grow the sport. Yeah, to be an ambassador for the Arizona Coyotes. And I know when he, even when he was a player, and you can go onto YouTube, and I think there was a video of him walking the streets of Phoenix, and he was testing people's knowledge about the game of hockey, and he would give them tickets and it got it right. Or I, I can't remember how I think he would give him tickets, and he was on after hours when he was a player, and he talked about those videos, and he said the one player or the one guy in the video was a diehard Red Wings fan, so he made sure that guy got tickets to see the Red Wings when they came to town. Mm. And yeah, I think it's that's like the on-air Paul Bizonet and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And look, regardless of whether you like Paul Bizonet, you agree with his opinions, you like spitting chiclets or whatever. I think, personally, he's not that bad of an ambassador for the game of hockey, especially in a market like Arizona where, I hate to say it, but a lot of the people there don't care about the local teams because a lot of them are transplants, right? And, you know, if you're a transplant and you come from St. Louis or Denver or Detroit or whatever, you're not going to support... Or California. You're not going to support the local teams. You're going to support the team where you came from. And that's why if you go to Arizona... There are so many Dallas Cowboy fans there because that's the big team in Arizona. Yeah, and the other thing about Phoenix in particular is that arena is far as fuck. So imagine having the tra- like the transplant issue and your arena's in Canada. Yeah. Which Ottawa has that issue too, to be 100% fair, because Ottawa's a federal government town. True, but I think Ottawa... People look at Ottawa differently, number one, because it's a Canadian city, and I think because hockey is our national game. People think that, 
oh, yeah, it doesn't matter where you put an NHL team. People are going to flock to there for miles around. Where you're seeing in Ottawa the last couple of weeks, they've had games where if they played at the old Ottawa Civic Center, it would not be sellouts even there. Yeah, like, there was a game where it was like 8,000. Well, 8,000 if they were lucky. I, I, think it, I think the game versus Arizona this past week was like 96 or 9,700 people. Something like that. So it's really, really sad. But Arizona is in a different boat than the Senators are because the Senators have had success since they've been reincarnated in 92. The Arizona Coyotes have been there since 1996. And I could probably count on my one hand the amount of times they made the playoffs. The last time they made the playoffs was seven years ago. No, eight years ago. Sorry, it was 2012. You're making me feel real fucking old here, Tay. Yeah. I remember cheering them on then. I know, and funny enough, Paul Bizonette was a member of that 2012 Coyotes team. Yeah, and I guess the hard thing about like those Phoenix teams is just they didn't really have the funds. And if I remember correctly, one of those Phoenix teams actually made it fairly deep. I think it was the 2012 team, yeah, because they went to the Western Conference Finals before they got beat by L.A. Yeah, and that L.A. team ended up winning the whole shebang. So that team did have some success. And it's funny that we mentioned the Ottawa Senators had success, but the only real more success they had was uh, they lost one round further. Yeah, that is true. That is true. But But I guess that one loss further gets you a trophy. Yeah, that is true. One comment I do want to make about the story before we go on to the rest of the show is that... Carcillo received a number of death threats from the Barstool Sports fans, listeners of Spit and Chicklets, and you were talking about toxic masculinity. That's a really sad thing about these kind of shows where they're, they cater to a certain audience, but also you get the ugliness and the dark side and all the bullshit that comes along with that market. Because if they were just trying to and I'm, this is a very generalized statement, but if they were trying to market to everybody, I don't think these comments would have been as prevalent towards. Hey, have you seen Twitter? Yeah, I know, but you know what? Every, Twitter maximizes for assholery. It's and true. And I don't think it's just a young guy thing. And I think it might just be a young people. Actually, no, I'm not even going to say that. Like, young people and old people on Twitter are fucking crazy. Like, I'm part of the anime fandom, but everyone is batshit insane. And by that, I mean everyone. Yeah, it's, it's a real shame, right? And unfortunately, because with social media being the way it is, a lot of people are feeling that they are... That's the word I want to use here. They feel entitled to be fucking dicks to these people, right? And that's really a shame, because, and we're talking, just a few moments ago, we're talking with Jay Bowmeister, and the fact that you take away the human element of hockey players online, you are taking away the human element of the person controlling that account. It's completely dehumanized, I'd further argue. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. I don't think you can fix it, because people are batshit insane even on Facebook when you have your real name attached to it. And your job. Hell, I've seen people go crazy on LinkedIn. It's a shame, man. Yeah, and unfortunately, yeah. shit like this is becoming more and more prevalent as the years go on. You know, and I know this is ironic for people who run a 
podcast that mainly propagates through Twitter and SoundCloud, I have just have a feeling that people are just not going to take the internet seriously and will be better off for it in the next five or so years. So, Tim, given that we're just talking about the last two stories with Spit and Chicklets and Paul Bizonette and all that good stuff, now the rest of the top of the yard does not include those kind of people, but we are we do have a firing to talk about because Minnesota Wild have fired head coach Bruce Boudreaux after three and a half seasons. Boudreaux, who was hired by Minnesota in 2016, went on to record a 158, 110, and 35 regular season record while going 2-8 and eight in the playoffs. Boudreaux's assistant coach, Dean Evison, has been promoted to interim head coach for the remainder of the season. So, Bruce, on behalf of the National Hockey League, the state of Minnesota, and the Minnesota Wild fans, just want to thank you so much for all your hard work and everything you've done for the Minnesota Wild. However, Bruce, I got two words to say to you that I'm sure a lot of people have been waiting to hear. You're fired! Okay, so I don't know about you. To me, this kind of doesn't make sense for one reason. Minnesota are still in the hunt for the playoffs. Because you look at Bruce Boudreaux, and again, Bruce Boudreaux won 158, 110, and 35. That's pretty damn good, to be perfectly honest. And while you could scoff at the 2-8 playoff record... Let's be perfectly honest here. He is the head coach of the Minnesota Wild. A team, Minnesota Wild, thank you. Yeah, the Minnesota, thank you, Minnesota Wild, because they have been a team since their inception, have been known to choke in the playoffs every year. And be completely and utterly mediocre. And it's weird because he got fired in the midst of, I think, like a few game winning streak, too. Like, I, I don't get it. The time, like I can understand being like, oh, the Wild have underperformed for the past few years. Okay, fine, I'll buy that. This season has been a bit of a wash. Sure, I don't understand the timing. No, the timing is really weird. But the thing is, I don't wholeheartedly blame Bruce Boudreaux for the way the Minnesota Wild have been playing the last couple of seasons because two players in particular, I think, have handcuffed the Wild in making them better, and that's the contracts of Suter and Parise. Those two contracts have handcuffed the Minnesota Wild for the last eight years. And you know what? Because they have so much cap room and so much money tied up in those players, where do you find the money to improve your team from there? Pretty much. And the other thing that's been kind of nuts about that is Paul Fenton did a number on that team. Yeah, like the uh, Nito Niederreier trade. Yeah. So it's like, or the Donato trade as well. It's just like, not like Bruce Brojo was exactly given the best tools to work with last season. No, but I think that people look at Bruce Brojo's coaching record in the other stops he was in, most notably Washington, where the Capitals had Ovechkin and Backstrom and all these big-name firepower players around them, and they still underachieved in the playoffs. And where I think Bruce Brujo, you can kind of make an argument for him in Washington because he's like, okay, you had the best goal scorer of a generation, one of the most underrated playmakers of his generation, and a really good supporting cast around him, and you didn't get the job done. That I can understand. But at the same time, Pittsburgh. True. But then you go to Anaheim, 
And Anaheim had a pretty good team there. Not great at that point. They weren't. They were good, but not great. And I think that people misunderstood where Anaheim's strengths were. Because you looked at the team, and yes, they made it to the Western Conference Finals a couple of years. And yes, they had a lot of success in the regular season. But, again, outside of Perry and Getzlaff, was the team really that great around them? They were good, but they were not great. And I just feel no. like Bruce Boudreaux, since he's gone from Washington to Anaheim to Minnesota, it's almost like, to me, when you look at the, te- excuse me, the team, it's almost like he's being downgraded roster-wise. You go from Ovechkin, Perry, and Getzlaff, and now you go to Minnesota. Like, just looking at this team, yeah, you had Perry, Getzloff, Kessler, and Silverberg. Yeah, a very like, young Silverberg, too. Yeah, like, your fourth your fourth best point getter is Jacob Silverberg. The guy got the guy got blood out of a stone in that 2014-2015 season. I guess the hard thing is just, dude had no playoff luck. No, he didn't. And honestly, a lot of people couldn't look at the underachieving of the underachievements of the teams he played for, but also his coaching. Because while we're throwing so much praise at him, the one criticism is that he was very stubborn in his approach and he never really changed. And that's where a lot of people have pointed to him where in Washington and both in Washington and Anaheim, that's where they're looking at is why these teams didn't succeed is that he was too stubborn to change. Well, the hard thing is like that 2014-2015 team that he took he took to Game 7 against the eventual Stanley Cup champions in the conference finals. That's nothing to snip at. First round, he was out against the National Predators. Sucks. And then 2016-2017 was Randy Carlisle. Which, I do wonder about that guy. Yeah, it's like in 2013-2014, lost against the Kings. And I think they won that year. Yeah, so it's really tough, right? But... You know, I don't think Bruce Boudreau is going to be unemployed for a long time. I think there's going to be a team out there looking at him. But I'm still maintaining, I think, somebody like Peter Laviolette is going to get hired before Bruce because, as we're talking about the playoff record and everything he's done, I don't think teams are going to look at Bruce Boudreau the same way they did when he got fired from Washington all those years ago. Yeah. And the other thing, though, is Laviolette's also a really good coach. He is. And I'm actually really amazed he hasn't gotten hired yet. But you know what? You know, you can see in the next couple of months, maybe some head coaches get fired. Maybe Laviolette and Bruce Boudreau get both get hired. Yeah, we'll have to see. Yeah. So, Tim, you know how usually on top of the hour, I talk about head coaches being fired? In the uh-huh. years that we've done the show, can you recall a time where a head coach got re-signed by a team? No. Well, if that's the case, Tim, today is the first for the third line plug sensecast because the Winnipeg Jets have re-signed head coach Paul McClain to a multi-year extension. Maurice, currently in his seventh season as head coach of the Jets, has recorded a 29-24-5 record with Winnipeg at the time of the signing. So, Paul, on behalf of the province of Manitoba and the Winnipeg Jets fans, we just want to say, Paul... You're resigned. I was hoping for a. You're hired. Well, he already was hired. 
Yeah. He's been the head coach for seven seasons, Tim. I don't think that would have really worked. Yeah, I guess you're right. It, it's kind of tough, though. Paul, so, Paul Maurice. I really like him as a head coach for Winnipeg because he's a player that the team has bought into. And he's another guy that I think when you look at his record and the teams that he worked for, much like Bruce Boudreaux, he was never really given the best teams to work with. Like, he was with the Hartford Whalers in the last years that they were there, and he was in the first years of Carolina. He goes to Toronto during that period of time where they really didn't know what they were trying to accomplish or what they wanted to do. Were they... Did they want to compete? Did they Are they rebuilding? What the hell are they doing at Toronto? Paul Maurice is one of these guys that was always a very steady head coach for those teams. Now, the problem with Paul, again, is in the playoffs, his teams haven't really achieved much. And that's a shame because Winnipeg has had a really good team the last several years. And they're a team that I often watch them and I'm thinking, okay, what is missing here? About this team, you know, you have the Patrick Lyonnais, you have the Blake Wheelers, and I, not so much Dustin Bufflin nowadays, but you have players like that in Winnipeg, and you're thinking, okay, you have these star players in Winnipeg, you have a really good supporting cast around them, why have they not achieved? Yeah. And they're weird teams, too. But I guess, like, this season, it's... They were kind of on a shoestring team because of the whole Bufflin scenario. That is true. That is true. But you know what? Even though the Dustin Bufflin holdout or whatever you want to call it did sort of handcuff Winnipeg to where they had no cap room, they still went out and they worked as hard as they could to try and get themselves in a position to make the playoffs. Regardless of how Patrick Laine played in the first half of the season where Honestly, I don't know where he even was. He's one of those players that you watch him and you think, okay, this is a guy who should be scoring two goals a night. But then when you look at him in the first half and you're like, what the hell is going on? Like, why are you not scoring? Yeah, it's, it's weird. So, Tim, for this episode, we only have one trade to talk about, and it's a big one. The Pittsburgh Penguins have acquired forward Jason Zucker from the Minnesota Wild in exchange for forward Alex Galchenyuk, a 2020 first-round pick, and defenseman Kalen Addison. Zucker recorded 14 goals, 15 assists for 29 points in 45 games for Minnesota, while Galchenyuk recorded 5 goals, 12 assists for 17 points in 45 games for Pittsburgh this season. So, with this trade... It's official. Jean-Gabriel Pajot is not going to be a Pittsburgh Penguin. Pretty much. But at the same time, I honestly kind of doubted that he would ever be a Penguin just because the Penguins have wanted Zucker for a while. They have, and he's a steady forward for what they need, right? And obviously, Pittsburgh isn't. Pittsburgh's a team where you look at all the injuries that they've had this year, and you're just thinking, how are you still in the playoff race right now? And Zucker's a very good ad. Because he scores at a deceptively good rate. And he's always on the right side of the puck. So being able to basically dump Galchenyuk, who just wasn't really working out in Pittsburgh, and pick up a definite upgrade with, who isn't just a rental, is fantastic. 
Yeah, and that's the one thing about these sort of trades is that when you look at the player and you think, okay, say a Jason Sucker or whoever, I always look at the contract that these players are on because they're always rental players. They're always, okay, last year of a contract, but you gave up, you know, say a 2021st, this player, that player, whatever. It's such a crapshoot because how many of those trades ever work out? The one consensus I always get with these kind of trades is that player goes to a team, they give up a lot for him, player does not perform. As Senators fans, I mean, the big one would be Peter Bondra when he came in 2004. Like, he came from Washington where he was this big-time scorer. We gave up picks and players, and he didn't even do anything for us. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, a big rental pickup. Was Nick No, Nick Benino wasn't a rental pickup for Pittsburgh, and neither was Marion Hosa for Chicago. Um, well, actually, no, that's not true. Marion Hosa was a pickup for Pittsburgh. Right. And, Atlanta yeah, they, and Pittsburgh, yeah. Yeah, he did well in Pittsburgh. He did, and uh, he's one of those guys, like Marion Hosa in Pittsburgh. I often wonder how much more dominant the Penguins would be if Marion Hosa had re-signed with them and not gone to Detroit and then later went to Chicago. Because he was a perfect fit in Pittsburgh because you could slot him either on the first or second line perfectly. Mm-hmm. Because you look at Pittsburgh, who is our two centermen there? Crosby, Crosby and Malkin. Crosby and Malkin. Okay, well, it doesn't matter who you put Marin Hosa with. The guy's going to score goals regardless of who you put him with. I miss Hosa. I miss Hosa, too. God, I, I really hope he gets into the Hall of Fame for 2020. That would be fantastic. Well, I mean, how many players have been to the Stanley Cup final three years in a row with three different teams? It's like, it's just such a bizarre happenance. I know, but remember the memes of those days? Like, what if he had lost that third time in Chicago? Oh, my God. Oh, God, we would never be here in the end of it, would we? Well, at least he has three cup rings now. That's true. So let's turn our attention away from trades to some re-signings. The Edmonton Oilers have re-signed Nokum Nygaard to a one-year, $875,000 contract extension. Nygaard recorded three goals, six assists for nine points at 33 games for Edmonton at the time of the signing. Decent enough pickup, I guess, for Edmonton. I I did not know who this guy was. And since we started season three of the show, the one thing I've always done with top of the hour is that when I see players I don't recognize, I often don't include them. But with these players, I often look at their contracts, not so much the contracts, but their stats. If they are a current member of the NHL team, I'll include them. Yeah. Well, the thing about Nokum Yard, sorry, uh, Nygaard is, he's a solid fourth-line type player. Like, puts the puck in an opponent's side of the net, doesn't get scored on too often. And for that type of money, you can't say no to that. No, you can't, right? And Edmonton's a weird one because, again, outside of your McDavid's, Drysdale's, Nugent Hopkins, to me, all I see with Edmonton is a bunch of fourth-line players around them. Yeah, pretty much. So, I don't know. I think it's an all right signing for Edmonton. As long as he's a fourth-line guy and he's a very, very secondary-type scorer, I'm perfectly okay with it. They're not paying him much. Nope. 
But this next team kind of is. The Toronto Maple Leafs have re-signed Pierre Eggvall to a two-year, $2.5 million contract with an AAV 1.25. Eggvall recorded seven goals, seven assists for 14 points, and 35 games for Toronto at the time of the signing. I'm not going to lie, this is another player that I have never heard of, but when we get to the third game of this evening, the third meeting of the Battle of Ontario, I noticed that he was in this game. And I was like, oh yeah, that guy just got re-signed by the Leafs. Alright. I'm a little surprised by this contract, because he is shoot... We, well, we don't know what his actual shooting average is, but 1.25 for season seems a bit high for a contract like this, for a guy who is pretty fourth line, and he's kind of shooting the nuts. But, I don't know, guy's still young, so he probably has more room to go. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I mean, I really don't have much of an opinion on this signing, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, it's... I think it's just... I think it's another bit of an overpay by Dubas. Yeah. It's yeah, it's... It is what it is. And, yeah. But, yeah, I've got nothing to really comment on it. But I do have some stuff to say about the next two stories because... A couple of players got fined this week. We're going to start off with Minnesota Wild defenseman Matt Dumba has been fined $5,000, the maximum allowable fine under the CBA, for slashing Vegas Golden Knights forward Ryan Reeves. Dumba has recorded four goals, 15 assists for 19 points, and 56 games for Minnesota, while Reeves has recorded six goals, four assists for 10 points, and 58 games for Vegas at the time of the fine. I have really no comment to make on this because I didn't see the video. And the one thing I will comment on, and I will talk about it in the next fine, I'm beginning to notice that a lot of players who are getting fined are getting fined the maximum allowable fine under the CBA. Honestly, I think this is... And it's interesting because Evander Kane got himself in hot water for this. I think the maximum allowable fine under the CBA is uh, George Peros' way of being... Hey, I did something without actually doing something. Yeah, I could see that. Because honestly, you look at some of these players that they do this and they get fined for it. And you're like, okay, well, how is it that this player got fined for that? This player did this and got fined for the exact same thing. Or this player got suspended. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't get it. Honestly, I haven't been too happy with the Department of Player Safety under George Sparrows, but then again, I don't think I've really ever been too happy with the Department of Player Safety, period. No, and I think that's a feeling that a lot of people have regarding the department, right? Is that a lot of people look at, say, suspension or fine and thinking, well, what the hell are you doing? Like, that's not a fine, that's a suspension. That's not a suspension, that should have been a fine, and this, that next thing. But the one thing I will give the department credit for is that they do show the video and they do break it down. It's not like Colin Campbell who would just throw a fucking suspension at somebody for whatever reason. And the big thing from 10 years ago was the Matt Cook hit on Mark Savard, which he did not get suspended for. That was a hit. People were wanted Campbell's head for that. They were like, are you fucking kidding me? Matt Cook ended Mark Savard's career over this and you're not suspending him? Like, really? Yeah, it is better. Yeah, it's not perfect, but you know what? At least they're trying, kind of. Yeah, there's still room to grow. 
Boston Bruins defenseman said Daniel Chara has been fined $5,000, the maximum allowable fine under the CBA, for cross-checking Montreal Canadiens forward Brandon Gallagher in the throat. Chara has recorded 5 goals, 8 assists for 13 points in 56 games for Boston, while Gallagher has recorded 19 goals, 18 assists for 37 points in 49 games for Montreal at the time of the fine. This is one really... I... I do agree. I do agree with him being fined. But the thing is, I'm re- I don't know. I don't know how to feel about this one because again, you look at the size difference between Chara and Gallagher. Well, okay, Chara is six foot nine. He's over seven feet tall and skates. You cross check him. Of course, he's going to hit him in the throat or in the head, because that's where, that's pretty much a chest level for him. He's not going to well, hit him at the shoulder. It, I'm not saying, like, what were you going to do? You, you want to tap him? You want to. He could have done one of three things. He could have tapped him with a stick, cross checked him, or punched him in the face at that point. And, you know, Gallagher's one of these guys that pisses off the Bruins so bad, the way that Marshawn pisses off everybody else. But honestly, I think this is such a stupid move for Chara because to me, that kind of looks like a rookie mistake. Like, okay. You're Daniel Chara. You're 42 years old. You're a veteran in the NHL. You're cross-checking a guy who you've known for years to be a fucking pest. Just look at him and be like, you know what? Get the hell out of here. Really. That's all you need to do. You're six foot nine. Like, you're the biggest dude in the NHL. Just tell him, like, yeah, just get out of here, kid. You don't need to do this. You wrestle, you wrestle in the offseason. Like, yeah, it's... I think it probably should have been a one-game suspension. Well, I the thing is, I think if Gallagher had gotten hurt on the play, I would agree with the suspension. But still... You know, I don't like that sort of logic, though, because it's like, you have to make it so... It, like, if you make it dependent on outcome, then people are going to toe the line. If you make it dependent on action, then people know what the action that gets banned is, right? Right. So you don't want people towing the edgy line. If you want to get shit out of hockey you gotta have a consistent ban for bad things regardless of of injury so it has to be an attack on the input not the output true people could look at it that way but also you'll always still find those people who would say well you know what if you took out the instigator rule shit like this would not be happening because say you take a run at a player you can now immediately go after him well yeah it's a little barbaric but you know what that's where you install the respect among the players. And I think since they put the instigator rule in, that's the one thing that's gone. And you're seeing it, you start with Cook on Servard. You held, you saw it on Chara with Pacioretty in 2011 or whatever it was when he almost ended his career. You're seeing it players like that, but obviously those two hits are very different because Cook meant to hurt Savard. I, I kind of maintain that Chara could have really killed Pacioretty if he stuffed him headfirst into that stanchion. But I still think he kind of let up on it. But I don't know. I mean, this is a thing that I totally agree with you. I think that if you start suspending people over the action and not the input, then you're, you're going to start towing the line. Yeah. So I do agree with that. Now, this next suspension, Tim, I got to tell you, these, new, these next two suspensions... This is really what the NHL, Twitter, and all kinds of hockey fans all over the world have been debating 
for the past week. We're going to start off with San Jose Sharks word if Vander Kane has been suspended three games without pay for elbowing Winnipeg Jets defenseman Neil Payock. Kane, a repeat offender, took to social media following this to disagree with the suspension and called out the NHL Department of Player Safety for being flawed. Given that we were just talking about this, I kind of have not a gray area, but I have a very black and white opinion about this. I do agree with what he said about the player safety department. I do think it's flawed, and we were just talking about it a few minutes ago. Again, Evander Kane is a repeat offender. Are you that stupid to believe you are not going to get suspended for this? I saw the hit, and I'm thinking, okay, you've been suspended, what, twice already this season? You're a marked man in the NHL. You know that people are going to look for any reason to suspend you. Why would you do something like this? Well, the other time is... But also... Your protest loses most of its value when you're doing it with your hand at the cookie jar. Exactly. But the thing is, is that, okay, you do this, and now you're saying, oh, it's flawed. Well, you know what? You're an idiot, Evander Kane. You've done this twice already this year, and you've been suspended for it. At what point are you just going to be like, you know what? I fucked up. I shouldn't have done that. But no, he's like, you know what? This is stupid. I shouldn't have been suspended for it. Yeah, well, you know what? It's not the first time you've been suspended this year already. Like, yeah, it's, you know, and I think it's the thing is like, it's really annoying because like, dude has a legitimate point. He's just the worst person to make said legitimate point. Exactly. I totally agree with that, right? Because, you know, it, and we were just talking about like, I do agree with what he said about the player safety department being flawed. We, we were just talking about that. But also, as you were saying, he's the worst person to try and make this point. Because he's yeah. already been suspended once, if not twice already, this season. He's the kid with the hand in the cookie jar and just saying, yeah, but your punishment is flawed. Yeah, it's, you're not going to get anywhere with that. Exactly. That would be like, say, if... Zach Cassian, when he got suspended for what he did to Matthew Tuchuk, and saying, well, this is stupid. The NHL Department of Player Safety is flawed. He's like, yeah, well, you know what? You still did what you did. So really, who's really at fault here for this? Pretty much. Actually, speaking about Zach Cassian, and we're going to close out top of the hour with Edmonton Oilers forward. Zach Cassian has been suspended seven games for kicking Tampa Bay Lightning's Eric Cernak. Cassian, a repeat offender, has recorded 14 goals, 16 assists for 30 points in 52 games for Edmonton at the time of the suspension. Okay. Zach Cassian kicked a player in the chest with his skate. He only got seven games for this. Okay. Yeah. Do you realize if he was four to six inches higher, he would have killed him? If not killed, it would have been Richard Zetnik. It would have been non-accidental Richard Zetnik. You're giving him seven games for this? No, that is such a reckless, dangerous play, and it was intentional. You know what? This should have gotten at least ten. Because he intentionally kept a guy in the chest. Now, I understand, and I actually have to laugh at 
um, hockey Twitter because they did make the comments about Happy Gilmore. If you remember in the movie where Adam Sandler goes, you know, I was uh, I led the team in penalty minutes and I was also the first player to take my skate off and try and stab somebody. And I always thought about that when I heard about this story. I was thinking, that's funny. But again, that is so reckless. Like Evander Kane, he's already been suspended once this year. The NHL and the referees and everybody are looking for him to do something stupid again. Why would you go out and do this? That's what I have. Now, I understand if, okay, you fell down, you got tripped up, and you accidentally kicked him. Okay, that I can understand. But you intentionally kicked him in the chest with your skate on. In the immortal words of Forrest Gump, not a smart man, Jenny. Remember, this is the same the same player who uh, lost his absolute shit at Matthew Kachuk. Yeah, which is funny because uh, one of the guys I work with is a big Calgary Flames fan, and he and I were talking about that, and he goes, you know what, even though I'm a Flames fan, Kachuk totally deserved that. And that's yeah. really interesting hearing that from a Calgary fan because he, I was waiting for, oh, Cassie's a you know a POS and all this bullshit, blah 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 blah. I was not expecting that. I was like, wow, like really? Same time, Cassian is also a retard. And you know, it's one of these things because I'm looking at that stat line. This guy almost has 20 goals. The Oilers just re-signed him. And he goes out and does something stupid like this. Yeah. I am 100% convinced that he is McDavid inflated. True, but people also said the same about Leon Dreisaitl, and you're seeing that without McDavid in the lineup, he's still producing. Because I think he put up, like, what, 10 points in four games this past week? Mm -hmm. But it's also, I think he is nowhere near as effective when McDavid isn't on the ice. No, but in fairness... You know, neither is the rest of his team. That's true. So, Tim, that wraps up top of the hour for this week, which can mean only one thing. It's time to head on to the games. Now, we got three games to talk about this evening. We've got the Sens versus the Avalanche, Coyotes versus the Senators, and round three of the Battle of Ontario from Ottawa. But before we do that, let's hit the music. Okay, Tim, let's start talking about the Sens versus the Avalanche. This is a 3 to nothing Colorado victory. Avalanche goals were scored by Miko Rantanen, Valerie Nashuskin, and Gabrielle Lanzaskog. Shots were 35-34 for Colorado. Miko Rantanen opens the scoring to make it 1-0 Colorado after he made a spin move behind Ron Hainsey to get loose and put it top shelf. Nashuskin tips it in with nobody covering him to make it 2-0, and Gabrielle Lanzaskog pots the empty netter to make it 3-0 Colorado, which would be the final. So I had condensed to watch this game because I was editing the Daniel Esch interview from last week, which I wanted to make a real quick comment is that I'm really surprised that that interview got more listens than our episode from last week did. I mean, 
always kind of funny which ones get more listens and more which ones that don't. But I think our interviews generally do pretty good. It is true, and I'm very happy with how the Daniel Asher interview turned out. And I love the fact, and we were just talking about this before we hit record, is that I love the fact that during top during rapid fire asked him how many nice things you have to say about Brady to Chuck. Oh, his reaction was like, mm-hmm. oh, it was good stuff. So let's, Joe, go- let's get Borbietsky on next. Oh, that'd be fantastic. So let's quickly talk about this game. Now, I don't have too many notes to make about this game, but I do have a couple of players I want to talk about. And of course, we're going to start off with the goaltenders. Marcus Ogberg, 33 saves, 8.943 save percentage. Overall, I thought he played a pretty solid game in this one, making a number of good saves. Well, that Gabriel Landeskov goal was beautiful. Like, I don't think any goalie makes that save. No, it's really tough, right? And obviously, Rantanen is one of those players that I watch him and I tend to not realize how good he really is because I don't follow the team very quick, very closely. So when I see games like this, and I see, because everybody talks about the Nathan McKinnons, but Rantanen is a really solid player. And honestly, you look at the talent the Avalanche have right now, you probably have to go back 15, 20 years to an Avalanche team that was this talented. Yeah, and it's such a interesting team they've been able to build. And, like, I think the real key to this team so far has been the Duchesne trade. Yeah, that's true. And I often wonder, with Duchesne being traded out of Colorado and also later with Tyson Berry, is that... How much of that is now the leadership was moved away from Duchesne to Nathan McKinnon? I think a lot of it was. And then Nashville losing out on Gerard was pretty big. Yeah, because I know a lot of people were very critical of Joe Sackig as GM of the Avalanche, as I was too. But the one thing I will give Joe credit for, and I think Stevie Y is going to do the same thing in Detroit, is that he stuck to his guns with the players and the movements he made. And he's been very patient with this team. He's not like, okay, this team's not good in three years. It's time to trade everybody out of town. Yeah, and the other thing is just, he's made some sneaky good pickups, like with both Valtteri and Dechushkin, who was underperforming in Dallas, but now is having a pretty respectable year in Colorado. And uh, the Donskoy pickup has been fantastic. Yeah, and we also can't forget the uh, Philip Grubauer move as well. That was good. There is a number of players that, and I want to get your takes on, because there was a number of players in this game that had five shots. Connor Brown was one of them, Nick Paul was one of them, and the real American, Brady Chuck. So I want to quickly talk about those three players. Overall, you watched the game, and I condensed, watched it. How did you feel that these three players played in this game? Honestly, I think despite the scoreboard, like this game was really fun to watch, and I think, except for maybe the second period, Ottawa had a lot of punch to them. This was a much better game than the game last, the game they played previously, and all of those players he named were a joy to watch. Brady Kachuk doing Brady Kachuk things, and this is another game where it's like, how the fuck is Declare not scored? Yeah, because the one thing I noticed in the condensed version is that Anthony Declare had a couple of really good chances to score in that game, 
And that's such a shame. And we talked about last week. It's such a shame that he is so snake bitten because outside of scoring goals, he's doing a lot of things right. He's back checking. He's forward checking. He's creating scoring chances. He's playing a full 200 foot game. And excuse the pun, but he's not being a third line plug out there. He's no. being a very effective player for the Senators still. 100%. And the only thing is, it's a shame we won't actually get to talk about the Dallas game because we're not talking about games next week. But uh, the game against Dallas yesterday, he set up a beautiful, beautiful goal. So even his hockey sense is still with him. It's just, dude, has been brutally, brutally stink-bitten. I know. It's a shame, right? And it's actually kind of funny that somebody on Twitter pointed out that even though Duclair hasn't scored in... What, what are we at now? 19, 20 games already with Duclair? 20 games. 20 games? He still leads the Senators with 21 goals. I'm freaking believable, eh? But Brady's pretty close, though, because I think he's at, what, 19, 20 at the moment? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, he's pretty close. So, But I don't know. I, I'm still holding out that Duclair will get a scoring touchback because he's doing everything else right. The only thing he's not doing is scoring, and I think... That's why DJ Smith has moved him to the third line. Because he's seen that, okay, you're not scoring goals. That's what we're paying you to do. But I, I honestly, I feel bad for Duclair because I feel like DJ Smith should see that as well. They should see that, okay, even though you're not scoring, Anthony, you're still doing everything else right. So we're not going to give up on you in the top line. Well, the nice thing, though, is that throughout the week, Anthony Duclair moved up the lineup. So he played, he played 12 minutes in Arizona, but then he, he came back and played 17 against Toronto and played 19 against Dallas. So he moved up the lineup. One thing I do want to mention about Brady to Chuck, and it's not about this game, given that we're talking about spit and chicklets on top of the hour, is that I was listening to the interview they did with Brady, Matthew, and Keith Chuck. One thing I've actually noticed in that interview with Brady he laughs very similar to the way Jason Spezza does. And it's so... I don't know why I found that so amusing. I was like, oh my god, Brady almost sounds like Jason Spezza when he laughs. Oh, he almost sounds like... Eh, eh, that kind of fucking goofy laugh that Spezza does. Brady's almost like that. And I'm just like... I, I don't know. My brain just can't comprehend that. Oh my god. Shabbat section was adorable. I still haven't seen that. That's the only problem. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Can you imagine those guys being roommates? Oh my god, that would be fantastic. They are. Are they really? Yeah, that, or at least that's what I picked up from the, the section that I think it aired during the Arizona game. How are they not filming that? That's what I want to know. I want to see them filming it and putting it up on their YouTube channel. You know, I bet you, you get the, the Brady Kachuk face at least once a day. Uh, Brady Chuck faces are so great. You know the one I'm talking about, too. Oh, yes. <laughs> the, you told your girlfriend? <laughs> no. <sighs> I love that. That's my favorite gift of Brady to Chuck. That's so good. So, Tim, yeah. do you have any more comments you want to make on this game before we head off into the second game of the evening? This game was just really fun to watch. I know. I It really sucks I never got a chance to watch that game. But... The next game, I did get a chance to watch it. Coyotes versus Senators is a 3-2 Senators victory. Coyotes goals scored by Oliver ekman Larson and Jordan Osterell. Senators goals scored by Vladislav Domestikov, the real American Brady Tuchuk, 
and the other American, Nick Paul. Shots were 34-31 for Arizona. A somewhat even game overall, Ottawa started the game off controlling the pace with their puck movement and scoring chances, while Arizona started off lacking energy, but did get their game going as they tried to make it a competitive game, and they would actually outplay Ottawa for a time, tying it up, but it would not be enough as Ottawa would secure the W. This game was really fucking boring. Holy shit. It, I don't know. To me, it was what it was. I didn't think it was all that bad of a game. And there is a couple of players I want to talk about. And, of course, we're going to talk about the goalies again. Marcus Hogberg, 32 saves, a .941 save percentage. Again, this is another one of these games where I thought he had a really good game versus Arizona. For sure. Although I don't think, other than the goals they let, I don't recall Arizona having that many quality chances. Yeah, I can't really think of many. They had, they, had, they had a couple of good ones, but other than that, I mean, I don't know. I, I think Arizona, they were really shooting from outside. But there was a few moments I think Taylor Hall got in front, but other than that, yeah. That's a player I want to talk about. It's like Taylor Hall was kind of all over the puck, moving the puck in the right direction, but I was kind of impressed. Yeah, he's been a player I think people in Arizona have been kind of critical of because... Since he's going to Arizona, Arizona has kind of gone a little south where the Devils have treaded upwards. And again, I often wonder how much of that is the Taylor Hall effect kicking in with the Coyotes again. Yeah, like, I I just don't know. Like, I know he's a good player, but it's just like, I didn't actually realize he was on the ice most of the time. But a couple of players I did notice were on the ice, and we're going to start off with Drake Batherson. One assist on five shots. I really wish he could have scored in this game because he really created some really nice scoring chances in this game. Oh, yeah. And his setup on the Nemestikov goal was really nice. I know. I really like that pairing of uh, Batherson and Nemestikov. And Nemestikov's another player I want to talk about. One goal and three shots. This is another game where... Coming into this game, you don't expect a guy like Nemestikov to score. He's kind of like what Artem Anisiov is. When you see him on the ice, you don't immediately think he's going to score. But then he does, and you're like, oh, he scored. Well, I think the interesting thing about both those players is they're both very stable players. They're very good at just kind of keeping the game in a reasonable place. Moving the puck where it needs to go. And then they finish decently. And Vladislav Nemestikov, it's interesting because he'd been slowing down recently and suddenly he's he's had a few games where he's been very good and put pucks in the net. So maybe Ottawa will be able to get something for him at the deadline. Possibly, but it'll be very interesting to see what they get. And this was another game where you really tend to notice a guy like Tyler Ennis because Ennis is always moving. He's always creating scoring chances. And I can actually talk about more hidden in the next game, but I'm more on the train with Ennis of, I'd rather see Ennis stick around for maybe two years. I'm not saying three. If they could re-sign him for two years, keep him around to be a good third line, fourth line energy offensive guy, I'd be perfectly happy to keep him. Yep. Not for a super high cap hit, mind you, but you know, we can get him for two years, give him some decent money to keep him around. I'll be happy. Yeah, I think he's the type of guy that I would have no problem mentoring the youngins. For sure. So, Tim, do you want to head off into the third and final game of the evening? Yeah, fuck the Leafs. Tim, 
If you want to see me go on to this next game, give me a hell yeah. Hell yeah. Okay, Tim, let's talk about the third and final game of the evening. Round three, the Battle of Ontario. Leafs versus Senators. This is a 4-2 Leafs victory. Leafs goals are scored by Austin Matthews, Jake Muzzin, William Nylander, and Mitch Marner. Senators goals are scored by Connor Brown and Cody Golubuff. Shots were 31-27 for Toronto. Toronto outplayed Ottawa for the majority of this game. Ottawa started off this game well, creating scoring chances and getting a number of shots as the game went on, however... Their game regressed as Toronto took advantage with their speed and offensive attack. Ottawa would fight back in the third, but it was not enough as Toronto took a 3 to nothing lead in the regular season series. You know, I disagree with that characterization of the game. Really? I think Ottawa, like Toronto was mostly opportunistic, and Ottawa really took it to Toronto for a lot of the game. The Leafs looked pretty disinterested, and apart from an early goal, the Matthews line was pretty much taken out of the game by the Shabbat by the Shabbat DeMello pairing like I think this is a game that Ottawa deserved to win well let's quickly talk about the goaltenders Tim because both of them got a chance to play with this now we're going to start off with Marcus Ogdenberg 13 saves a .812 save percentage and you know me I always play the devil's advocate with the goalies and I will say this that the first goal okay that was a weak one there's no question about that but there was not much Marcus Hogwarts could have done on the other saves. On the Muzzin one, I, I think, yeah. Yeah, well, the problem was when, uh, on the Muzzin goal, Hogberg moved out of position. If he had just stayed still, the puck would have hit him. Yeah. But he moved out of the way, and the puck went in anyway. And then the Nylander one was kind of weird. Yeah, the Nylander one was weird. But, you know, again, there's not much he could have done on that. But... One goalie that did play really well was Craig Anderson. 14 saves, a perfect 100 save percentage. Looked fantastic, kept Ottawa in it. And that save on Zach Hyman in the third period. Oh my god, that was so nice. And oh, with the poke to glove. I love so the good. fact that even a couple of Leaf fans were bowing to Craig Anderson with that save. I was just like, oh my god, that was so amazing. On the other end, Jack Campbell had a Pretty darn good night, too, with a .93. He really did. And it's funny, because I watched this game twice. And I watched it at my dad's place, and then I went over to my buddies, who's a Leafs fan, and watched it there, too. And that's the one thing he commented, too. He said that he thought Jack Campbell played a fantastic game. And I never thought I'd ever hear this, but he's a Leafs fan. And he says that Craig Anderson was one of his favorite goaltenders. And I was like, really? It's hard to root against Craig Anderson. It is hard, but you know what? Craig Anderson, I thought, played a fantastic game, and I did oh, yeah. see the stat line against Dallas. Like, he played fantastic, apparently, in that game, too. But there's a number of players that I actually thought they didn't play too bad. Of course, the band known as Hot Sam Bacho, Thomas Shabbat, one assist on three shots. I like the fact he had a number of rushes in the game, but the one thing I noticed is that the one thing he couldn't find was space to finish in this game. Yeah, and it's interesting that as disinterested as Toronto looked at times, they were very good at collapsing. And I think that's just part of Ottawa not having a ton of weapons. So it's easy to kind of zero in. But this is one of those games for Shabbat where I, excuse me, I watch him make these end-to-end rushes and I see him try and finish. And it really sucks because these are, this is the kind of player I want to see him do this almost every night. And he... 
And it seems like he kind of picks and chooses whenever he tries to do this. Especially against the Leafs. Like, I've known he's noticed that against the Leafs and against some other teams. But I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're playing way better teams. But he's also being paired with guys like a Ron Hainsey or a Golabath or somebody who can't, where he has to make sure he comes back to help out his defense partner. You got DeMello for most of the game. So that definitely helps. It does. Another player I want to talk about, Jean-Gabriel Peugeot. Two shots. I actually thought he played a really good game versus Toronto. He back and forth checked all game and applied heavy pressure to, to, on their defense. And it's funny because this is one of the games where I really, really noticed Peugeot in this one. Yeah, he, he was all over the ice and in a pretty good way. And I think his line actually did a pretty good job containing the Matthews line between them and the Tyranny and the Mastikov line. So I got some... Uh, and not a lot of NHL teams can really do that. No, that's true. But also the one thing I've noticed with Toronto's offensive play, especially in this game, is they were major cherry-picking in this game. And I often wonder with Toronto, I was like, okay, their plan must be simple. Cherry-pick at center and just hope it goes in. Because that's the one thing I noticed in this game. It was like the least defenseman would get the puck in their zone, they would just pass it right down the ice, and there would already be a guy at the red line. And I'm thinking, oh, okay. Uh, what are you guys doing cherry-picking? I understand Ottawa's not that good, but come on now. like you got to play a full 200 game. You can't just pass the puck to a guy that's standing at the red line. The well, that's game. why I was saying that Ottawa wasn't, like Toronto wasn't really into this game. And the fact that they still play down to teams is it's going to bite them in the ass in the playoffs again. And, like, granted, they're missing their best defenseman. Cody Cece, no. <laughs> but, uh, and Muzzin has been able, Muzzin and Barry have started to be able to take the load a bit better. So, definitely there's a bit of that. But motivation's a problem. And they got spanked by Buffalo on Sunday. I know. I was so happy. But, <coughs> excuse me. One thing I did notice when I saw the highlights of that game was when Jack Eichel scored, he was telling the Leaf fans to sit down in the front row. And I said to Adam, I said, I'm waiting for Brady to chuck to do that in the Battle of Ontario when the Senators score. Yeah. Actually, do you want to quickly talk about Brady to chuck? Because he had one assist on three shots. And I love the fact that he's starting to become a real thorn in Toronto's side when we play them. Oh, it's fantastic. You know who actually had a really good game and sadly got had nothing to show for it? Anthony Duclair, and it's really funny on the goal of Buffalo, because <coughs> he thought he got it. Oh my god, I know. And that was the thing that I was telling my dad and telling my buddy. I was so sad to see that he didn't score on that one, because that guy is so snakebent. And, we, and we've talked about it already on the episode, as we did last week as well. But he's one of these guys that... I was really hoping when the score was 3-2 Toronto... Duclair would have tied it. I was I would have I was ready to jump up in the air if he had tied that one because there was no other person on this team that I would have loved to have seen tied up more than Anthony Duclair. Yeah, and it's it's funny how Ottawa started to collect a bunch of guys that it's hard to hate, and then it's Brady Kachuk. I know, but the, but the nice thing about this team is that. The Senators, that they're building towards a more harder working team that we have in the past. 
And I think last year, the fan, like the players knew it was such a wash that some of them didn't even show up some nights. And I think that was really upsetting as, as a fan because you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, why are you guys taking a night off? Like, aren't you guys supposed to be trying to win? You don't have a first pick this year. Like, what are you doing? And then yeah, you come into this year. Such damn wash. Exactly. And then you come into this year. And the, and the players know that. The players know it's going to be another wash season. But they also figured, we can't get any worse than we did last year. We've got a first pick. Let's go out. Let's work hard every night. And let's give the fans a reason to come watch us. Yeah, and I think the other thing is they've, some of the off-season signings and some of the young players coming in have really, really invigorated this team. Like, Nick Paul has been great. Drake Batherson is really settling in. And the fact that someone drafted so low has become, frankly, if not a top-line player, but an incredibly solid top-six weapon. Tyler Ennis having a fantastic, fantastic season. Yeah, Connor Brown's another guy I've been really happy with. And actually, I thought he really... I liked him in this game, too, with his one goal on four shots. Oh, yeah, and he... I mean, that, let's talk about that goal, because, oh, my God, was that ever nice. But I often, yeah. that's a goal that could have gone either way, because you saw Jack Campbell catch it with his goal stick, and it still went in. I often wonder if it had hit the stick and just went straight down. That would have not been a goal. He would have swiped that out of the way. Yeah, but hockey's a game of inches, right? It's true, and I'm glad that the bounce went for Connor Brown in this game because you look at his stat line, and yes, he doesn't have the most points of the team, but he's a guy like Clark MacArthur. You know he's going to give you an honest effort every night, regardless of whether he scores or not. Mm-hmm. And I would hate the guy. Actually, speaking about goals, do you mind if we go back to the Colorado game for a second? Because I just remembered something. Sure. The reviewed non-goal for Nick Paul. Do you think it was a goal, or do you think it wasn't a goal? (sighs) See, that's a hard one, because when you look at the replay, it's kind of hard to see where the puck is. And that's a play that could have gone either way. I think that's a goal that, honestly... I don't know if that was a... I, I, I don't believe it was a goal myself. I don't either. Because that's a one that is so hard to tell because when the puck is under the pad, it's like, okay, where exactly under the pad is the puck? Unless you're like a Dominic Osic that would go all the way into the net after he made a save. It's really, really hard to... I don't think you want to reward such a net crap. And even though it's not Nick Paul's fault... That's why the incidental contact rule exists. Exactly. But this Even is, if it's not a pure reading of said rule. But here's the thing, and we're talking, and you, you were just talking about this now. I often wonder if, say, the NHL had implemented, say, the Fox Tracks puck, if they had had that technology on that puck, do you think you could have made an accurate decision on whether that should have counted? Because if, uh, you, if you had that puck and it's glowing, and you can see it under the pad, you can say, oh, look, you can see that the glowing circle is clearly over the line. But it I, depends how strong the radio frequency is on the puck, because uh, depend if it's not that strong, it probably doesn't pass through a human that well, so it becomes an estimate. The computer estimates where the puck is. True, but also, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think the puck only works if it's moving. I don't think it works if it's just still. There is two more things I want to talk about this game. And this is more for myself because 
you know me, I'm a big music guy. And the one thing I noticed while watching the Hockey Night Canada broadcast is that there's a newer rock band out there called Dirty Honey. Fantastic yeah. song, by the way. It, the song they used was a song called Heartbreaker. They used it a couple occasions on the broadcast. And I'm sitting there watching the game and I'm listening. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I know that song. Like, that's freaking cool. Like, And Dirty Honey was one of the bands that I think Rolling Stone, they named them the best unsigned band or whatever of the year. And the Sheepdogs actually got named on Rolling Stone for that same reason too. But Dirty Honey's been a band I've been listening to for a little while. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool that they're using them now in the broadcast. And the other thing I want to talk about, I'm not sure if you caught this as well. Like I said, I watched this game twice. My buddy was dying laughing when he when he heard this. I th can't remember what period it was, but Ron Hainsey was behind the net. And you can hear it clearly. The, the announcers had stopped talking. And all you hear is, what the fuck? <laughs> My buddy was literally on, almost on the floor laughing. His, he thought that was just the funniest thing ever. And I put that up on my Instagram story. I said, regardless of whether we won or not, that still made my buddy's night. Oh, it's just too fu It's too funny. I guess one thing that I found watching the game was just, man, Leaf fans are, like, like the Leaf fans that go to other people's bar barns and then just make sure they're always standing up and tapping the glass whenever the camera's in their end. God, they're obnoxious. But you know what, though? And that's the one thing, this is a big criticism for me. Why do fans, when you're by the glass, why do you feel the need to turn around and wave? Like, who cares? Yeah, like, yeah, we get it. You're at an NHL game. You're right within, like, six inches of an NHL player that makes much more money than you do in your life. But come on. Like, who cares if you're waving to the camera? Nobody knows. Nobody's at home like, oh, look, there's Karen right by the glass waving at us. It's like, no. It's like, no, set the hell down. Yeah, pretty much. I don't know. Uh, did you get a chance? To, I think it was uh, not serial leader. I think it was Bruce Firestone. One of the founders of the Sens, and he put up on Twitter, he says, he, I think he said, uh, spent 27 years trying to establish a fan base here in Ottawa, and our building is full of Leafs fans. Yep, it's, pretty much. And it's like, yeah, it's it, it's been like that for years, Bruce. Like, what are you talking about? I think it's gotten to a pretty big tipping point. Like, it was, it'd been bad for years, but it's god-awful now and uh, the fan alienation under Eugene Melnick's been pretty bad yeah but the one thing I do want to comment about the Leaf fans invading the Canadian Tire Centre look I don't have a problem with opposing fans coming to another arena to watch their team now given that I'm a Senators fan and I live in, the, in British Columbia the only time I will ever get to watch them live is when they come to Vancouver you live in Calgary you're the exact same way when the Sens come to Calgary that's the only time you'll get to see them unless you go to Ottawa but just because I'm a fan of the Ottawa Senators and I go to an opposing building, I'm not going to be disrespectful and I'm not going to be rude to the home team's fans because we're all hockey fans. We're there to enjoy a hockey game. That's the one thing, and I think you and I have talked about this in the past, that's the one thing I wish Leaf fans would understand, especially when you go to Ottawa, because they have been known to be so disrespectful to the Senators fans in Ottawa. And it's like, okay... We get it. We're our, you're our provincial rival. You know, you're an original six team. But you know what? At the end of the day, we're all hockey fans. This is not Toronto. You're not at the Air Canada Centre. And it, that's fine if you want to cheer and you want to support your team or whatever. 
but you don't have to be disrespectful about it. And that's something yeah. I've noticed with the Leaf fans when they come to Ottawa, especially during the National Anthem, the Go Leaf Go chant start. In Vancouver, when that happened, the Leaf fans started that, and the Canucks fans were just like, shut the fuck up. They caught that on the broadcast. They caught Canuck fans telling the Leaf fans to shut up when they're doing that during the anthem. Yeah. And it's funny because you see on social media that there's a strong consensus that Habs fans aren't like that. No, and you know what? Like, when I went to the outdoor game a few years ago, I was surrounded with Montreal fans. And you know what? Montreal fans were pretty respectful, all things considered. Because you know what? We're, yeah, we're outside. It's fr- I think because it, we were outside and it was freezing outside and we're all just trying to stay warm. I think that's a big reason why a lot of people are like, okay, you know what? We'll try to be respectful or whatever. But why is it it's always the Leafs fans that do this? Uh, I think it's the fan base with the biggest chip on their shoulder in, I think, all of professional sports. Like, I can't think of another team that even really compares which is because funny. We're talking about a team that thinks it's kind of the center of the hockey universe, but it doesn't have the history of Montreal nor the recent success of the American teams. Which is funny because you think of a city like Buffalo, right? And Buffalo has been in the NHL for a long time, and they've had some pretty good teams, and they've had some success without winning the Stanley Cup, obviously. You would think a team like Buffalo would have the biggest chip on their shoulder because you're in a market that is always underestimated. You're surrounded by other teams, more better established teams, like the Leafs or the Red Wings or the Bruins or whatever. But even in a way, being center fans, you would think Ottawa would be the same way because we're constantly being thrown under the bus for our fan support. We're always being second-guessed by people who say, by the Leaf fans or the Hab fans or whatever. Our team won a playoff series in the last decade. Yeah, exactly. We went, And you know the funny thing is, and I always hear Leaf fans go, oh, you're a Sanders fan, and nothing. I said, yeah. Well, guess what, guys? What has Ottawa done that Toronto hasn't? Oh, let's see. Win a division title. Win a President's Trophy. Go to the Stanley Cup Finals. When's the last time Toronto went to the Finals? What's the last time Toronto? Yeah, what's the last time they won a division title? When is the last time the, Bru- the Leafs beat the Bruins? And that's the one thing. I love the fact that Boston always beats the Leafs, because that's the one thing we can always hold against the Leaf fans, is, yeah, you can criticize us, but we at least beat the Bruins in the playoffs. And you know what? We had an ex-Leafs that knocked him out. What's yeah. your guys' excuse? Nothing. And I guess that's the other thing, is, like, I do find Montreal fans actually pretty chill. Like, they get passionate about the sport, but actually talking to them, not bad. Yeah, and that's funny, and I'm the same way. Like, I've met Hab fans, and I've... I've had pretty good conversations with them about hockey. Lee fans, the ones I've had, and I, me personally, I haven't really had a overly terrible experience with Lee fans. I do find they're very obnoxious as a fan base, absolutely. But my personal interactions with Lee fans, given my brother's a Leafs fan, my one of my best buddies is a Leafs fan, that's fine, and they know I'm an Ottawa fan, so we can always talk shit about our teams. But... I just wish the Leaf fans, and this is not me crying wolf or me being a whiner or whatever. I just wish the Leaf fans, when they come to Ottawa, understand this is not your home building. You are not in Toronto. We understand the Leafs are here. You can support your team. You can be passionate. You can cheer for them. It doesn't matter. Just don't be disrespectful to other fan bases. 
And that's why I was saying about Jack Eichel in last night's game. I love the fact when he scored, he, he told the Leaf fans to sit down. And I love that. That's the biggest fuck you to Toronto I've ever seen, and I love it. And they deserve it. And I can't wait till Brady to Chuck starts doing that in the Battle of Ontario. I can't wait for Boston to put him down again. Oh, it's going to be so good. So, Tim, do you have any more comments you want to make on this game before we head off into the close? No, not really. Maybe a fuck the healthy, fuck the Leafs, but... Well, you know, Tim, we can always use more of those. Yep. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed it because, believe it, Tim and I love recording it for you. We're on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network where you can find our links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. We're also on Twitter at Third Line Plug is our Twitter handle. Tim is at M901 Honey Badger at Matt Greatway Gibster, GR8, WATE Gibster. If you want to shoot us an email to talk about the games, top of the hour, or you want to talk some shit about the Leafs and their fan base, shoot us an email, thirdlineplugsensguys at gmail.com. So, Tim, even though next week is our trade deadline episode, we're not going to talk about some games. There is going to be some games for the Ottawa Senators this week. Now, of course, we've got four games on the schedule. We got last night's game versus the Dallas Stars. Tuesday, we are playing the Buffalo Sabres at home. Thursday, we're playing the Winnipeg Jets. And Saturday, we're playing Le Canadien in Ottawa. So we're going to eat all of our words about being nice to have fans, aren't we? I don't think so. I think half fans okay. are pretty cool when they're in our building. That's true, that's true. Until next week, guys. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Jetsy. Go Sands, guys. Woo! No, no, Tim. Don't you mean... Woo!